Old Testament scripture reading is Genesis 19, verses 1 through 29. It's also the text for our sermon as we, this morning, return to our series in the book of Genesis. Genesis 19, verses 1 through 29. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place." For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to them, he said to him, behold, I grant you this favor also that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. 
The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in all the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed." To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. We have before us difficult words of judgment, a reminder of your just wrath against sin. We pray that as we take these words seriously, you would use them in the way and for the purpose that you intend, and that most of all, that they would turn us to our Lord Jesus Christ and the good news that you have proclaimed to us in him. For any of this to be a blessing for us, it must be a result of your work and your presence among us. And so we humbly acknowledge our dependence upon the work of your Holy Spirit as we now gather around your word. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have before us this morning from Genesis chapter 19, an actual fire and brimstone sermon. So here is one of those interesting Sundays where, you know, only a few of us made it here because of the weather. Some were able to make it, some were not able to make it. This is how you know you really need this sermon. Well, that's not actually how it works. But it kind of is in God's providence. I often make a mistake, and it is a mistake in prepping a sermon of inevitably having in mind certain situations, circumstances, struggles that particular people are facing, and then I always make too much of who happens to be here or not be here on a given Sunday. We, of course, should not do that because all of it is within God's providence. Indeed, this morning, one of the reasons I am happy to joke a bit about why you really need the sermon is that we have, if you've heard the story before from Genesis, we have sort of prior ideas about what the point to a story like this is. And I want to challenge us this morning, as we should always be challenged, perhaps I even say it explicitly too often, but I want to challenge us this morning to be willing to be surprised by what God's Word says to us. Be willing to be surprised by what the meaning of a given passage is, especially when it is a familiar one. I personally, you know, when I lay out a sermon series, I'm anticipating particular passages, and this is one where I had some prior ideas about how I wanted to preach it, and I have been, in the course of uh, dealing with this text, preparing for this sermon, I have been surprised by it, and I hope to pass that on to you this morning. As we come to Genesis chapter 19, we have before us a very clear announcement of the judgment of God. A picture of the wrath of God against the sin of human beings. But as we linger over the text, if we are willing to do so, we discover far more. And really, part of the key this morning is to have a sense of momentum from the previous chapters. That's hard, because we've not been in Genesis the last two Sundays. Remember our Advent series, The Shape of the Sun. In every chapter leading to this point, four chapters in very clear ways, in ways that are more clear than is often the case in Scripture, Christ has been clearly portrayed for us. That hasn't changed. As we come to Genesis 19, we desire to see the shape of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has not changed. He remains the same the way He is revealed. Here is who He is for us today. We're going to see this in three steps. First, the judgment of God. Second, the mercy of God. And then third, the Christ of God. Now often the sermon points divide the text up into sections. We are not doing that. Each one of these points is from the whole chapter. The judgment of God, the mercy of God, and the Christ of God. First then, the judgment of God this morning from Genesis 19. The clear overview of the story is that Sodom was a place of great wickedness. It's expressed both explicitly previously in Genesis that it was well known that Sodom was a place of great wickedness, that their wickedness was such that others around them had been crying out to God because of it, and that God now, through the two angels, visits judgment upon Sodom. That much of the story is clear. The chapter before this, Genesis 18, involved three men 
who were a physical manifestation of the presence of God visiting Abraham. And you might remember that at the end of that story, remember Abraham makes a feast when they meet with him. They give him the promise of the son who's going to be born. You might remember that at the end of that story, there were what we called ominous developments. We are told that after the feast with Abraham, they turn toward Sodom. And it is explicitly said, verse 20 of chapter 18, at 18, Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. There was this ominous turn toward judgment. Well, we get an example in the text of just how wicked and sinful this place is. We are told in verse 4 that when now the two men, and by the way, there's an interesting twist there, there were three who visited Abraham. We are told at the end of chapter 18 that the Lord has left. Verse 33, and the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And now two angels go down into Sodom. When the two arrive, we are told that all the people, verse 4, But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people of the last man surrounded the house. And they intend to do violent and wicked things. It is in response to all of that violence. This is a, um, by the way, being presented as an evidence of God's justice. That he is being very careful to make sure the city is just as wicked as he has heard. Now, of course, God knows everything, so what's the point to that? Well, it's emphasizing in a way that, uh, in, in terms of human experience, emphasizing God's concern for actual justice. Well, all of this wickedness is expressed. And then, uh, we're going to look at the details in a moment of of the two men rescuing Lot and his daughters and his wife from the judgment that is coming. And then we are told, verse 23, at the end of it, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. That's the little city he wanted to escape to. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. The emphasis then is the definitiveness of the judgment. He wipes out all of it. We want to hear this first of all as an announcement of God's just judgment on sin. What do we do with that? How do we hear it? Now you know, perhaps in your own experience, of things you yourself have wrestled with or conversations with others, you know that we often have difficulty with the Scripture's announcement of God's judgments. We say, is it not possible that there were some in the city who were innocent? We think of all the different ages that surely were represented there, and this totality and completeness of God's judgment is a difficult thing. Or perhaps we think of other accounts in Scripture. We've dealt with the flood, We think, for example, of the conquest of Canaan when God uses Israel to bring judgment on the Canaanites, of which, by the way, this is an example. This gives us an illustration of just how sinful the people were in that place. And this reality of the finality and totalness and completeness of God's wrath against sin can often feel like a difficult thing to deal with. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that difficulty Our sensibility is not always the same as God's. 
our sense of what is right and just and good is, does not always completely match with what the Scriptures proclaim, and it is okay to acknowledge that that is difficult. I want to tell you, say two things, two statements that must be said at the same time in response to that. First, we must be willing to have our idea of what is just and right and good be challenged. The idea that me as an individual human being should be the ultimate decider of what justice looks like, I mean, if you press that point at all, is actually a little bit silly. We should say to the broader culture, wouldn't it be strange if the creator of the universe revealed true righteousness and justice to you, and wouldn't it be strange if that just happened to line up with all of your sensibilities? In fact, if that were to happen, it just lined up with everything you already thought, that is one of the surest signs you are inventing an idol. And so it makes sense that we would be challenged by the reality of God's justice. There's a second thing we can say. We also must be careful to rightly understand just what it is God is doing in Scripture and just what it is that God says about His justice. Often when we are troubled by something Scripture says about God's judgments, we're often being troubled by popular interpretations of what Scripture says, which is not always exactly what Scripture says. To put this differently, if something is not truly just and righteous, God wouldn't do it. We want to say both things. On the one hand, be surprised in a challenging way by what God says he will do and what he does, but also be aware that often we have distorted ideas of what he is doing. If something is not perfectly just and righteous, God would not do it. Moreover, when people are challenged by the reality of God's judgments, we should not view what the Scriptures say as simply contradicting our instincts. That even when the Scriptures speak challengingly about judgment, it speaks in a way that resonates with what we know actually is good. Human beings know that there is such a thing as evil in the world. Whether they'll admit it or not, whether they're open about it or not, every human being knows there is such a thing as evil in the world. And however much it is the case that in a given story or account in Scripture that God's judgments are difficult for us, we all know that it is a good thing that evil would be judged. There is such a thing as evil, and human instincts know that it is good that God promises that evil will be overthrown. Now, that doesn't mean that in every story, every account, we can make sense of all of it, but we ought to be open about this. It is good news that God declares to us that evil and wickedness will not win. Well, what is the sin here in Genesis 19 in particular being judged? Now, we have to be careful. We don't know the whole story of what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. We are told explicit references that their wickedness was very great and that whatever it was, there was an outcry of other people against just how wicked and violent they were. We have at least two specific things in our account. That yes, there is here a reference to homosexuality when they say uh, that we might know these men. That is a euphemism for an act of, of homosexuality. So that is clearly here. Though it does not seem to be the main issue, the main issue seems to be the violence of what they intend to do. And so we have two things very clearly. Homosexuality in particular, whether that's the main point here or not, it is clearly condemned elsewhere in Scripture, and it is contrary to God's created intention. And we have their intention to make all of this happen violently. What is happening then? 
but that sin being very clearly portrayed as destructive. Sin being very clearly portrayed as leading to people destroying each other and being violent toward each other. And we ultimately cannot separate sexual sin in general from that. Remember, every sexual sin is a failure to love your neighbor. And all failures to love your neighbor, if it could run amok, would ultimately lead to the destruction of the other. And so what we have here is a picture of what sin leads to. What sin, if it is unleashed, would eventually do. And in fact, here is where the text must challenge us with God's judgments. That is what the judgment is a picture of. The fire and sulfur being poured upon Sodom is not a random, arbitrary judgment. It is God giving a picture in the here and now of what all of our sin would eventually do. Human sin would all eventually, if it could simply run its own course and be fully unleashed, would lead to destruction. And God, in all of his judgments, including this one, is placing in history, for our warning, a picture of what all sin heads toward. And to make sense of any of it, this is how we must view it. All of God's judgments, in fact, function in that way. They are uh, a speeding up, a, a bringing into the present where it would all go eventually. This is why the prophets, for example, in the Old Testament, repeatedly refer to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as an expression of future judgment. The New Testament does the same thing in multiple places. Our Lord Jesus Christ does this in Matthew chapter 10. Second Peter speaks this way, referring of this judgment as a picture, a pointer toward future judgment. The book of Revelation speaks of basically everything bad that happens in the world. Natural disasters, wars, all of the ways in which people suffer and calamities that happen in this creation. The book of Revelation speaks of all of them as being God's judgments in the present, pointing us to the final judgment when Christ returns. It's as though God is scooping up a little bit of that judgment to come and placing it in the present so that we might see just what all of our sin heads to. So, how then should you hear the message of God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19? This is for us, for all of God's people, for every human being, a warning of where sin leads. A warning of the judgment to come because of our sin and a warning of what our sin does in the here and now because of all the ways in which it is destructive. I mentioned a moment ago the bit of a twist at the beginning of chapter 19. It says, the two angels. Up till this point, the three angels, the three men, all the different ways they're spoken of. Remember in chapter 18, sometimes it's God speaking, but it's the three men. It's the one voice of the Lord. Up till this point, they have been an expression of the presence of God. Present with Abraham. Abraham, at the end of chapter 18, we're going to speak of this more in a moment, actually interceding on behalf of Sodom. There's a whole story where Abraham says, God, if you can find 50 righteous men, will you spare Sodom? And God says, yes, I will. And then Abraham says, what about 45, 40? He gets all the way down to 10. 
interceding for Sodom. If you can find 10 righteous men, will you spare Sodom? Up to this point, the Lord has been present. The Lord's been announcing uh, promises and blessings. There's been time for Abraham to intercede. But then, verse 33, the Lord went his way. And now it's just the two angels. That is, the time of interceding has ended. The time of God being present has ended. The time of God announcing promises in terms of this particular story has ended. And there is a warning here that there will come a time when it is too late. That there will come a time when the wickedness has run its course, when the time of salvation has ended, the time of interceding, the time of crying to the Lord, when it will simply be a matter of judgment. And in that movement of this story in Genesis 19, headed toward a time when it would be too late, there is a warning about the history of the world. That we are now in the time of mission, of the presence of the word of the Lord, calling people to repentance, and there will come a time when it will be too late. The warning of judgment for every human being. But what is the proper response to this warning? Say, okay, there is a clear announcement of the judgment of God. How do we respond to this? The only response is to look to God in faith. To cry, upon, cry out to the name of the Lord. To look to our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, wait a minute. How does Genesis 19 give us that? We must see in this text, secondly, the mercy of God. I just alluded to the fact of Abraham interceding for Sodom. I want you to think for a moment of just how clear and obvious Sodom's wickedness is, the way it is portrayed. The violence of what every man in the city was seeking to do. At the end of chapter 18, God told Abraham, for the sake of ten righteous, I will spare it. God told Abraham, for the sake of ten righteous people in the city, he would not bring down judgment. Now, I want you to be thinking about this even more strangely. Who is the righteous person being spoken of? It's Lot. Look, Lot does not, he, he is not portrayed well in this story. Now, he, he is referred to as righteous. Second Peter refers to Lot as righteous. He does not look good. The whole bit where he actually offers his two daughters. Now, what is, what is going on here? Well, no matter how you interpret he is being cowardly, is it possible he's bluffing? Is it possible because he knows these guys, he knows that they're going to decline it? Is he simply delaying? What is he doing? We don't know. Regardless, it is cowardly and horrible. You have all of his lingering. You have all of his wheeling and dealing at the end. He doesn't want to go to the hills. He wants a better place to stay, even while he's being rescued. What is going on here? Well, in all of that, he's nevertheless referred to as righteous. You say, well, what, is, what does righteous even mean then? It clearly doesn't mean sinless perfection. What does it mean? It simply means those who have looked to the Lord in faith. That's all it is, Old Testament and New. The issue is faith. Lot is rescued despite all of his failures, despite all of his foolishness, all of his weakness. And God says, if there had only been a few more like him, he would have spared the whole city. What am I trying to do here lingering on this point? How do you normally hear the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? It is about God's wrath, his judgment. 
Well, okay, it is that. But the thing that's actually surprising in the story is God's mercy, His grace. He was willing to spare all of Sodom if there were only 10 people like Lot. All right. Zoom in on the story a bit more, a bit closer. How does God deal with Lot? Well, while Lot is being foolish and reckless, trying to wheel and deal with the men who are seeking to do all of this violence, trying to crash into the house, what do the angels do? They actually pull Sodom into the house to protect him. Pull Sodom. They pull Lot into the house to protect him. By the way, saying Sodom instead of Lot, yeah, that's unfortunate. Um, it's actually confusing in the flow of the story when it's referring to the men. It's the, the two men are the angels. When it, also, when it says the men, it's speaking of the men also trying to break into the house. There is confusion there in how it is said. The point is, the two angels pull Lot into the house to rescue him. Then, go to verse uh, 16. We'll go ahead and start at verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. Now, if you are the two angels, right, what, what do you do at this point? You know, you just watched him wheel and deal with his daughters. Like, I'm done with this guy. In fact, we actually know his daughters are actually horrifically sinful too. At the end of chapter 19, a part we didn't read, they're going to commit incest with their father for the sake of having offspring. Clearly, even his daughters have been heavily influenced by the life of Sodom and what is happening there. Lot lingers. Verse 16, but he lingered. So the men, this is the two angels now, seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. The judgment happening, that's the expected thing. That's the natural thing. The surprising thing in the story is God's devotion to being merciful to Lot and his family. He, he, through the two angels, actually drags Lot out of the city. Then, verse 19 at this point, if you're the two angels, you're, like, you're going to bring Lot back to the city. You know, like, look, just, just, go, just go take the judgment, okay? Verse 19, Lot says, Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. They're the ones rescuing him. They give him the plan to go to the hills, and he says, no. What does he want? He wants to stay in a city instead. He just cannot give up the comfort. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. My life will be saved. And they grant that favor to him as well. What's the point to all of this? God's amazing, surprising mercy to Lot and his family. His daughters have clearly been swept up in the sin of Sodom based on what they're about to do. His wife looks back, becomes a pillar of salt because of her desire to remain part of Sodom. It's what the angels were, worthy, were worried about. And yet in all of that, God is asking to, acting to rescue and to spare him. Why? Well, we are told at the end of the text. And brothers and sisters, this is, I want to set before you basically for the rest of our time together now, this is the point to the account the point to the story. 
Verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. How is it summarized? God remembered Abraham. It is for Abraham's sake that Lot is spared. Ah, this reminds us of the whole account of Abraham interceding back in chapter 18. All the negotiating, the number lower and lower. Abraham pleading on behalf of Sodom because of the righteous who were there. And it is because of Abraham that God rescues Lot. In fact, God had actually invited all of this to happen. Earlier in the passage, chapter, eight, chapter 18, verse 18, we read these words. Uh, this is when the three men are still there, so the Lord is still speaking. Verse 16, they look down towards Sodom. Judgment is coming. Verse 17, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Here is actually the overall story. God says, through Abraham, all nations will be blessed. He tells Abraham what he's about to do, inviting Abraham to intercede. Then, because Abraham intercedes, those who are connected with Abraham, Lot, are rescued and spared. That the picture, the announcement of what God is doing is that through Abraham, he is saving people. The judgment is coming. It's what sin leads to. Not arbitrary, random punishment, but the self-destruction and horror of sin. But God, through Abraham, is acting to rescue and save. This was the promise God gave back in Genesis 12. Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All who will be saved, who are joined to Abraham. All who bless Abraham will be blessed. God's intention from the beginning is that through this family, he would rescue all nations. And the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of that happening. The one connected with Abraham is spared. What we have is nothing less than an announcement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The true son of Abraham. The one who would come, who would be born to the family of Abraham, so that all who look to him in faith would be of children of Abraham. That simply being united to that son of Abraham, our Lord Jesus Christ, means being spared. Now I'm curious, how often have we heard the account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah announced in this way to the broader culture? We ought to point to the story and say to others, say to those who are trapped and lost in their sin, in the self-destructiveness of sin, point to the story and say, look what God is doing. Through Abraham's family, he is rescuing from the destruction to come. He has done so in our Lord Jesus Christ, taking that wrath upon himself, God acting to absorb the judgment that is coming, so that simply by looking to that son of Abraham in faith, you might be saved. And look at the relentless uh, forcefulness with which God does the rescuing. He drags Lot out of the city, though he lingers. He continues to rescue, though he is foolish. This is what God does today all the more. That yes, judgment on sin is coming, but God is rescuing from that judgment 
through the true son of Abraham, our Lord Jesus Christ. To put this more bluntly, this account is not simply more ammunition for a culture war. Yes, it warns us of judgment, but it does show as part of a story in which the whole point is God's desire to rescue all nations from that judgment. We must hear it in that way. We must represent it in that way. Indeed, the warning is against all those who would refuse to unite themselves with the true son of Abraham. The warning is against all of those who would refuse to live as a son of Abraham by being united to our Lord Jesus Christ. And ironically, one of the most foolish ways in which we as the church refuse to be united to Christ is in our grasping after the powers of the world. It is in our use of a text like this simply as part of a culture war, as a try to point the finger out there and how bad it is out there and how wonderful everything is here. We refuse to identify with a suffering Savior, with a Savior who shows God's love for the world. We must be careful to use the passage how God uses it in the account of Genesis. A warning of judgment for the sake of directing us to Christ for the salvation of the nations. In fact, if we hear this directing us to Christ, we'll hear the text totally differently. This is our third thing this morning. First, the judgment of God. Second, the mercy of God. Third, the Christ of God. You see, one of the problems in how we use a passage like this, on the one hand, we like to simplistically make it about judgment on something out there, not really about us at all. And on the other hand, we like to make a contrast. So often in the church today, look at all the judging stuff in the Old Testament. Aren't we glad that Jesus came and he is nice now? Well, we see in this passage, both in the judgment and in the mercy, the shape of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we must see all of that. We've already seen this with Christ being the true son of Abraham. He is the one who intercedes on behalf of the nations. He is the one through whom we can be rescued from the judgment to come. But then our Lord Jesus Christ uses these words as a warning. Well, actually, who do you expect it to be a warning for? Matthew chapter 10. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is speaking not of Gentiles, but of covenant people who are rejecting the apostles. And he says these words, Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. That is, for a town in Israel who rejects the Messiah. No, we need to pause over this. We like to make a story like this about God's judgment on ickiness out there somewhere. How does Jesus use it? He speaks to the covenant people. And he says that judgment is a warning for those within the covenant who would reject the Christ. Who would not live by faith in Christ. Jesus uses it as a warning for the church. As for those who have been called and gathered as his covenant people. And what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that the point always is union with Christ by faith. 
that the issue is not inside, outside, Jew, Gentile. The issue is not, well, there's horrible sin out there, but it's a good thing we have, we have things together here. The issue is faith in Christ, the true son of Abraham. And Jesus takes that story and uses it as a warning for those who are within the covenant. Jesus in Luke chapter 17 uses the account of Sodom and Gomorrah as a description of the final judgment. And in verse 32 of that chapter, he says, Remember Lot's wife. Remember in the midst of the warnings of judgments to come, the temptation to want to identify with the world. Because to identify with the world is to share in the judgments of the world. And Jesus uses those words. Jesus uses that story, that account, to warn of that judgment. Now, what is the point there? We cannot divide Old Testament and New. Jesus takes these words and speaks of them as words of warning for the church and as words of warning of judgment to come that remain the case for God's people today. Indeed, this is why we read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The apostle speaks to the church saying, remember there is judgment to come. And Jesus is the one who will bring that judgment. Verse 7, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see the shape of the sun in Genesis 19, both in the judgment and in the mercy. God has not changed. So, all of that being the case, trying to pull all of this together, how should a passage like this speak to us? Hear it as a warning and heed the warning. Jesus uses it as a warning. That all of God's judgments point to what is to come, to what our sin inevitably leads to. Let that warn you of, of the vileness of the sin that we are tempted by. That every sin, however small, were it to be unleashed on its own, apart from God's grace, would lead to this sort of self-destruction. Heed the warning. But also, be amazed at the mercy that God calls Lot righteous. That the one who looks to him as part of his covenant people, the one who looks to the promises of God, God rescues. And he rescues relentlessly, even when we are tempted to linger, even when we are tempted to not take it as seriously as we should. Be amazed at the big story of grace and mercy, that God, through Abraham's family, is acting to rescue all the nations of the world. And so the reply to that then should be to look to our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true son of Abraham through whom God is rescuing the nations. And then as you receive that grace, proclaim that grace. That we must, in our posture in the world, make clear that when we encounter sin, when we encounter foolishness and rebellion and the destructiveness of sin, what we represent is the God of Abraham who through Christ, the son of Abraham, is rescuing from that sin and destruction. And so our tone, our posture, the way we come across, what we are known for in the world, ought to be precisely that witness. And isn't there something thrilling about that coming to us 
from the account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God, through Jesus Christ, the true son of Abraham, is rescuing the nations. And then finally, be confident in the destruction of evil. That the story is the promise that the day will come when evil will be no more. The day will come when all that is twisted and broken and distorted in this world will be judged. And that defeat of evil comes both through the rescue of people from that evil and through the final judgment on the evil. One of the things that frees us to have the posture of the generous offer of grace to those around us. One of the things that frees us from needing to breathlessly engage and fight over every whatever the current issue of the day is. One of the things that frees us to simply be the church faithfully in our witness is the confidence that God will set all things right. That God is rescuing, that God is defeating evil, and it is precisely that promise that frees us simply to live faithfully as the church of Jesus Christ testifying to His grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for the gracious warning of your judgments, the ways in which you turn us away from our sin by your warnings of what it is our sin deserves. We praise you for the grace that you have shown us in rescuing us from our sin through our Lord Jesus Christ as the true Son of Abraham. And we plead with you for the wisdom that we need from your Spirit to live in a way that makes that same grace clear to others. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.